Welcome to part two of this double header on managing the crisis. In the first part, we heard about who's best to run the crisis. In this episode, we're going to hear about crisis leadership, what makes a good leader, how to run the crisis, and how to get better at it. We'll mostly be hearing from Eric McNulty about his research for the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. His work at the MPLI is very practical. They find out what works in the field and translate that into principles and practices they can apply and teach. When we spoke, he and his team were busy speaking to responders to the Australian bushfire crisis and meeting with the Centre for Disease Control and the White House about its response to COVID-19. We'll start with James Krask, who articulates a piece of advice we heard a lot. The easiest and simplest way to improve crisis leadership is to practice. I think the main lesson from all of those experiences is the more that you prepare and the more that you um, practice how you're going to respond, the better you are on the day. And I actually think over and above that, you know, knowing, being familiar with a plan and being familiar with how that plan might work in practice, over and above all that, I think the number one important thing that comes out of that practicing process is getting to know your peers. So you know um, how people might react in a, in a crisis event. You know what that individual's role is going to be. And it, it just makes the whole process an awful lot, a lot smoother. And actually, if you look at some research that Marsh did last year with Cranfield University, um, that explored the impact of crises on share performance of 70 big corporate crises over the last 10 years. At the heart of the findings is that issue. Those organisations that um, add value to their share performance post-crisis are typically characterised by the way that they, they, they respond and their post-crisis behaviours, so how good they are at managing the initial crisis event. And that doesn't happen by accident. It, it, it happens through practice and coaching and, and familiarisation with roles and responsibilities and so on. Over to Eric now, and the difference between business as usual and crisis management. Thinking you're going to be... Because you're good every day in your business and you're making those decisions about finances or about product design or whatever it happens to be, that you're good at that, you're suddenly going to be great in a crisis just because of that, is a real fallacy. Um, the emotional state of a crisis is completely different. You will go to the basement, as I mentioned. There'll be a lot of stress, stress you may not have anticipated that you need to be ready for. And, and a good exercise or drill can can simulate at least some of that environment, that emotional tension and emotional energy. Eric talked a lot about getting out of the basement, getting past your adrenaline-fueled initial response to something more rational. Here, he explains exactly what that means. Well, the first thing I would suggest is that you another, use another one of our tools, uh, which is the notion of getting out of the basement. So any of us as humans, we are hardwired when faced with threat. It triggers an amygdala hijack or what's the freeze flight fight response because our brain's primary job is to keep us alive. And so any threat that could be a, a loud, unexpected noise, it could be that nasty email from a supplier, it could be an active shooter or earthquake, any of the things you're talking about here. 
our brain reacts in the same way, uh, which is a very fast chemical signal almost virtually instantaneously goes and triggers that freeze flight fight response, what we call going to the basement. When you're in the basement, you're not acting rationally because your, your body, your brain is in survival mode. So you're not thinking clearly, you're not processing information. All your brain is telling your body to do is get, get safe. And you'll notice your heart rate increases, your sweat glands activate, you breathe a little heavier. And you don't want to be making decisions. You don't want to be um, trying to create a plan of action in that state unless there really is somebody walking in the front door with a gun, in which case, you know, then your that freeze flight fight reaction is the speed is really helpful. Otherwise, it's much more helpful to get out of that basement, to stop. And you can do it as simply as taking three deep breaths, doing something in which you can demonstrate some self-competence, uh, so something you know how to do. This is where business continuity plans are so important. But being a good leader isn't just about managing your own reaction and getting yourself out of the basement. You also need to help everyone around you. One of the things, if you are that leader in that situation, you want to make sure you do is give as many people as possible a job to do. That's how you'll get them out of their basement. So again, if you can, you know, you're, you can't do everything yourself. If you're if you're directing, okay, you know, Sally, you make sure medical service is called. Joe, make sure you meet them at the front gate so they can get in. You know, and you may give someone a job of just just go make coffee for us because we're going to be here for a while. Giving everyone a job that they know how to do. Um, we'll keep them out of the basement and keep them because if you don't give people a job, they'll make up a job and it may not be the one you're hoping they will do. Eric's next piece of advice is something I immediately latched onto. Over the last few seasons, several of our guests have talked about the challenge of incomplete information when you're responding to an incident. How do you make good decisions based on limited or even inaccurate data? So we developed this tool called the cone and the cube to help remind people that even in the midst of crisis, when th things seem chaotic, they have to remember that there are multiple ways to see any situation. So if you imagine for a moment an opaque cube, and inside it is a cone. Now, if I drill a hole, a peephole in the side of the cube, you'll look in and you will see a triangle. If I drill another peephole on the top of the cube and you look down into it, you will see a circle. Now, of course, in that situation, who's right? Well, the person looking at people A is right. That's what they see. They see a triangle. People B is right. They see a circle. But they're also both wrong because the actual thing inside the cube is a cone. And so understanding that you as a, as a small business owner will look through and see it one way. Public officials will see it differently. Your customers will see it differently than you will. Your employees may see it differently. And seeing it differently doesn't mean that, that you're wrong and they're right or vice versa. It means you've all got a distinct view of what's going on. And that when you tap into that and begin to create a more three-dimensional view of what's happening, you have a much better understanding of the situation. You generate more options. And it's much easier to get buy-in from various stakeholders to your plan of action when you appreciate that they have a valid view and help them appreciate that you have a valid view as well. I asked Eric for his recommendations to improve the situation. How do you pull in more information? How can you fill those gaps? So what do you see? Just asking people that, that question, not in a judgmental way or asking them how they see it differently is, so what do you see here? Where do you see as the risks? What do you see as the opportunities? You know, or if somebody expresses an opinion saying, so what evidence are you basing that on? And again, trying not to be judgmental in your tone, but really being open to asking questions. You know, anyone who's been in a long relationship with a significant other knows 
there's a way to make sure that you're acknowledging that other person's point of view, whether that's the quality of the restaurant or was the movie any good or where should uh, Johnny or Sally go to university? Um, you know, being able to have those conversations where you're actually op uh, opening input. And I think from a leadership perspective, one of the transition points we are seeing is that for a long time, we thought of the, the leader as the person with all the answers. That was you know, sort of the most senior person, the most seasoned person, um, the person who'd seen it all. And you went to them because they were you know, the closest you got to an all-knowing person. What we're learning because of the complexity of the world and the speed at which things are moving, the changes in things like technology and demographics, and there's so much uncertainty in the world, that the really effective leaders, be they in day-to-day -day leadership or in crisis situations, ask really smart questions. They're really curious. They're always trying to bring in more data because they know that you know no one knows everything, yet everyone may know part of the answer. So it really it's operating from a position of strength when you're asking questions and admitting the, the uh, limitations of your own knowledge. So getting out of the basement and getting a picture of what's going on are critical at the start of the response. The, the important decisions are rarely as urgent as you think they are, and the urgent decisions are usually not as important as they may seem to be. Uh, again, unless you're in a real life-threatening situation, and you will generally process information better, you, you can then have the time to open yourself up and say, okay, what's really going on here? And I think, again, those two first things to do, I, I always recommend people do, is what do we know, and what do we know we don't know? You start writing those things down. First of all, it gives you a bit of focus. It clarifies what's happened. And you may not know, the, you know, if it's a ransomware attack, you may not know the motive. You may not know how, you know how serious they are. You may not know how far into the system you've gotten. All these things. So you say, okay, now you can begin figuring, what do we need to figure out? Who do we need to call? Who needs to be involved? And you do it in a much more methodical way, which is, uh, I think, a much better way to operate. Eric had a great example about why it pays to take a minute and think and why you shouldn't rush that initial response. Short, interesting story. Uh, we run a, an executive, an emerging leaders program here at Harvard. And the last day of that is an all day team challenge where we have six teams, they have five hours to solve a number of puzzles outside and they have to come back. And the team that wins is the, is the one that has solved most the most puzzles in their five hours. And last year we ran this for the first time, and there was one team that lagged behind. Uh, we have, we were watching them. We thought, oh, they're in real trouble because everybody's on to puzzle three, and they're still they're just getting to puzzle two, and they were really slow. Uh, and at the end of the day, they just made it under the wire at five hours to get in. But it turned out they actually won the competition because they didn't finish fastest, but they had the most right answers, which was the the real challenge of the puzzle of the day. And we talked to them about it, and they said, well, we, what we did was we took the first 10 minutes and sat down and talked about how are we going to be as a team? Who's going to do what? How do we want to function here? And while that made them slower to start, they functioned much better throughout, and at the end of the day, they were the most successful team. So thinking about how you're going to function is one piece. And the second bit of advice I would give you is think about how some everyday challenges you're facing as a business may be a window Solving them may give you the window into building a more robust and resilient enterprise. We often hear about peacetime and wartime leaders. But is it one of those pop social anthropology concepts that has no real basis in fact? I asked Eric if it was something he found in his research. 
if some people are great at business as usual, but hopeless in a crisis, or vice versa? Well, first of all, I'd say they, they are largely the same attributes. They're just taken to a higher level. So if you think of sort of an amateur golfer versus a professional, um, they're playing the same game. They're using the same basic equipment, but one plays at a much higher level. So the really good crisis leaders are those who are able to step up when the pressure hits. But but it's high emotional intelligence, that ability to regulate emotions, to um, to remain calm and uh, and work with people, understand that everyone's under pressure uh, and take care of yourself, take care of people. Um, they, as you talked about earlier, keep themselves open and, and bringing in information so they can understand uh, the situation that's going on and the, the evolution of the situation because these things tend to change over time and you don't want to get stuck with a, with a fixed view. Finally, Eric shared some recommendations on delegation and sharing the load. And then they are very clear about what are the decisions they personally want to reserve for themselves they need to make versus everything else which they can delegate out. And they want to make sure someone good is taking care of it, but they're not going to try and get not going to get stuck in the operational weeds of trying to make every decision. So if you can remain calm and confident, you can, you know, make sure everyone's clear of what you're trying to do and whether it is making sure everyone's safe and secure, it, is it that our, our networks are are secure and locked down, whatever it happens to be, people are clear about that larger mission. Um, you're attuned to the changes and looking for patterns and then very clear about the things you need to handle and the things you can delegate so you don't get overwhelmed. Um, th those are things we see work consistently well and that's across sector, it's across geography, it doesn't matter sort of where you are. Um, and, and taking care of your people, it's, it's a longer duration event. I mean, it's one thing if it's sort of instant and we're going to be out of this in 24 or 48 hours, but longer than that, making sure you're, you're taking care of yourself and taking care of your people. Um, it can feel as of heroic. You, you can't let go. You're going to work around, <clears throat> around the clock day after day after day. And we know that for all of us, our performance degrades at some point. Um, you can only go so long before you start making poor decisions. You start, uh, being snappy with people, you start closing your mind off, and that's not what you want. So you, as a, as a leader, need to be able to model that and say, you know what, I'm leaving to get a, you know, it may only be three or four hours sleep, but I'm leaving to, to get a little bit of sleep. If you do that, others will then feel free to do it as well, and then you can tell people, okay, we're going we're gonna to shift personnel here, somebody else is going to take over worrying about this for the next three, four hours, you get some rest, and then when you come back, you can take over. Um, but this is particularly challenging for small businesses where you don't have a lot of people. But it, it doesn't take more than, you know, in your third or fourth day of a, of, a, of a significant incident that people just start to get worn out and they aren't going to be able to sustain, sustain high performance. So your real goal there is how do I sustain high performance over the duration of this event and into the recovery phase? And that means being very attuned to yourself and the people around you. For this real-life disaster story, we're going back to Julie Goddard. This one illustrates Eric's point on how taking some time really helps the response. It's an IT failure, not a fire. There's no immediate threat to life. You can take some time to collect yourself and plan how you respond. One of the, one of the first times I, I suppose, I, I suppose it was business continuity, but I didn't recognize it as such at the time because I wasn't in BC at the time. But when I worked for Bass Brewers, 
we uh, it was in the days of centralised IT. So we had a, um, a data centre in Burton-on-Trent um, that had um, all of our processing capability for the world and everything kind of went through there. You know, so we had 16 top-of-the-range AS400s, which at that time were the biggest biggest beasts that IBM produced. Um, 164 servers and all the, obviously, the network infrastructure, which sat in the data center. And um, we had a day where there, it was just like the worst ever. Um, a contractor came onto site into the data center to do some work and lent on the power down button. And the power down button is there because... If somebody accidentally completes a full circuit with their fingers, you need to be able to hit the power to, you know, save a life, basically. And he leant on that button and took down the entire facility. So four, four or five countries went down, as well as the whole of the UK, um, <clears throat> in an instant. And um, what saved us that day, actually, was that the AS400 were mirrored um, across multiple sites. So even though our main data processing was done in that one centre, the production sites for AS400s, the main AS400s, switched over to the backup uh, AS400s, which were mirrored sort of every 15 minutes. So thankfully, the production sites stayed up. Um, but everything else went, and I mean everything. So like um, 164 servers, all the phone systems, all the door entry systems, which were controlled by Swipe Pass, that um, went through there. So absolutely everything. And what actually saved us that day was the fact that because all of the systems were down, including the phones, nobody could call the service desk. And I was part of the service desk as service delivery. Um, no one could call the service desk because all the phones were down. And what it allowed us to do was to think through a plan and um, come up with how we were going to deal with it and how we were going to get messages out. And, and it was interesting because it was one of very, very early lessons, even though I was in IT at the time. Um, it was an early lesson in think before you act. So it's very easy when you have an incident to suddenly run around starting to want to do things. And clearly, if someone's life is at risk, then you have to take immediate action. There's no doubt whatsoever. But in all of my planning, I do this thing called a core team assessment. And it's all about understanding what's affected, what's not affected, what do you need to do now to stop it getting worse or to, or to, or to protect life or to minimise the spread? What communication do you need to send out right now? Um, it, even if it's just a holding statement to say we're working on it. And what are you going to do next? What are your early steps to try and gain control? And it was an interesting experience that because we were given that gift because the phones were down and nobody could call us. So we had the time to think through a plan. And that stayed with me forever, really, which is don't overreact without having thought it through. Unless, as I say, you need to, obviously, if you're going to call an ambulance because somebody's been injured, that's different. But I'm talking about something where nobody's lives at risk, but you've got to think through a plan before you react. Because if you don't think it through, you would likely to panic and take the wrong actions before you've fully understood the problem. And that could lead you into a much worse place. To finish, we return to James Krask for some advice. If you're starting from zero, what can you do in a day to get to a more resilient place? See you next time. I think there are, there are maybe four things to do 
whether or not you'll get to all four within 24 hours, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see. The first is that you need to you need to spend, a, a, you know, perhaps before 10 a.m. Um, picking up the telephone and asking the heads of security, the head of safety, the head of quality, if there is one, uh, the head of IT, whether there are already existing procedures in place to manage some of the sort of issues that we've been talking about. Well, facilities is a good example. They usually have a standard operating procedure for a pipe burst or a toilet blocked or something like that. The the call-out tree they follow could be built upon to support a broader crisis. It's just a case of escalating it higher and higher for higher impact events. So some of the thinking around who to who who should be communicating, what they should be communicating, who they're communicating with, the channels that they're using may have already been done by somebody else. So you may not be starting from from zero. So that's the first thing. Second thing I do before lunch, if you get the chance, is to uh, get the crisis management team in place. And I don't mean a 50 page document and 20 people that are on call to, to manage an event. It could be as basic as three people that you know you've got their telephone numbers and they know that at three in the morning they might they might get a telephone call and they know each other as well. They should do already because they'll be on executive level, you would hope. Um, and then the third thing, after you've had your lunch, you might want to go back and think about what what are my top five critical business processes in this organization? And then ask the question of the people that own those business processes what they would do if they were to be disrupted today. And that will be the basis of, of the plan that you can worry about tomorrow when you come into come into work. And then the fifth thing before you go home is to start to build out what your roadmap should be for the future to build a more comprehensive resilience capability. And again, I'm not talking about a Gantt chart that runs to, you know, 20 pages of, 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 of you know, written across the wall. It's one slide, very clear, right, what am I going to do over the first 100 days of this, of, this, of this project to get us to the point where we've got more resilience? That's what I'm going to do. Whether or not I can do that in a day or not, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>